So, hello and welcome to all of our wonderful listeners from Just a GP podcast. This is Charlotte Hespy and it's my privilege to be the main host for today's podcast, which is the opportunity to have a chat with the absolutely wonderful and talented Louise Delaney. So I'm actually not going to say anything about you, Louise. I'm going to let you talk about who you are. But before you do that, we'll go into what are good moments of the week. But I'm joined in today's podcast with Ash and Beck. So it's the four of us having a wonderful chat. So Louise, what's a really a nice thing that's happened to you in the last week? Hi, Charlotte and Ashley and Beck, thanks for having me. In the last week, the best thing that's happened to me has been travelling down to Wagga and catching up with my daughter, who I haven't seen since the beginning of the year because she's off doing a gap year with the Air Force. And with COVID, no one's been allowed on base or off base. So this has been the first time I've seen her, which was absolutely wonderful. And she was actually allowed off the base to come and stay with me for the weekend down there. So we actually got out and did some great walking and saw some sunrises and Oh, it's just beautiful. Sounds awesome for both of you. So, Ash, what's been your highlight? I think it's that moment when you finish a task that has taken up a lot of your energy and, you know, headspace where you have to sort of think a lot and there's a lot of pressure around it. The moment after that has done, that's been my highlight of the week. I'm currently completing a master's and I had an essay due and I had decided instead of doing an essay on something that I kind of am comfortable with and, you know, good at, I would kind of like, and I put it, I'm doing the master's so that I can learn, not just so I can get a qualification. So I was like, well, I should do something that teaches me more, that I can learn a bit more. But then obviously there's more sort of muscle that goes into that and I just had a huge week and I didn't have as much time as I thought I would to do that. And so it was a real balance to try and crunch out as much as I could. And then I finished it on Wednesday night and I just had to do a a proofread and update my references in terms of sometimes EndNote does the weird things with references. So I'd, I'd written it and I just had to proofread and make sure everything was okay today. And I had that moment on Wednesday that like, oh, it's finished. Oh. And then today when you like press the button and it's just like, yes, (laughs) free to make tiramisu. (laughs) That's the highlight of my week. Excellent. Yeah, it is. It's one of those sort of, it's that submit thing is you're free of it too. It's the monkey off your back, isn't it? Excellent. Beck, what was your highlight? I... Um, a little bit angry at Rebecca eight weeks ago for agreeing to do something because I agreed to and as very privileged to be invited to give a presentation at a conference but the conference was in Europe which is very exciting but would be even more exciting if I could go but it wasn't which means I um had to be awake between 1am and 4am to give my talk and then to stay around for the panel afterwards <laughs> <laughs> so you sort of had that sleep deprived brain of yes can I really answer the question <laughs> I think at one point I was like I don't know what I'm saying ask someone else <laughs> but and then you have to decide if you're going to go to sleep first and wake up or if you're just going to stay awake the whole way through 
But I really haven't been looking forward to it ever since they announced the program when I realised what the time zones was. And then earlier in this week, I'd got the time zones backwards. So I thought I was going back nine hours instead of forward nine hours. So I got my nights wrong as well. But then I did actually get to the conference and get to present. And it was a lovely, welcoming, kind, friendly group of people. And they were all really responsive and asked lots of really interesting and thought-provoking questions. And it was it was really nice to actually be there even virtually. And so my highlight was even though it was actually really, really hard, it was really, really worthwhile. Awesome. And well done for doing it despite that dread. I did have a little extra giggle when you said when you realised what the time was. <laughs> that is, it's one of those things is like, oh no, <laughs> did I really agree to something at two o'clock in the morning? <laughs> Why would I do that? <laughs> well, then I'll move on to my highlight. I'll do a sort of summary. My Saturday was a lovely day. It started out with a really gorgeous run around the bay, which is my local sort of running jaunt because it had the most magic skies. This time of year, you often get the most beautiful, beautiful sunrises and Oh, it was just a gorgeous start to the day. And then I had to rush, get myself home and then spend the whole day in the Masonic Centre in Sydney emceeing for fellowship graduations for about 100 of our new fellows. And it's the first time we've ever done sort of fellowship ceremonies in these sort of small puddles, so to speak, rather than one big ceremony. We had four very small and intimate ones with all their family members. Karen Price came up for the day. There was myself and Dimity Pond, who's provost, and Joe Bruce, who's censor, and all the staff team. And it was just so well managed. It was lovely, intimate, and just what a privilege sharing that very joyous moment with so many of our new fellows and the first time that we actually had an opportunity to actually get back together again for doing that sort of celebration of fellowship and a good reminder of just how hard people work for to get that fellowship and how much it meant to them and their families. So many parents and husbands came up and spoke to me and it was just, yeah, great privilege and then a great finale was I went to the theatre and saw Home I'm Darling which was a Sydney theatre production and I was a bit worried I was going to be so exhausted and I'd fall asleep but it was just such a wonderful play and a great production that I actually stayed awake and enjoyed the entire production which is good because I was in the second row and you don't want to fall asleep in the second row so that's my that was a Saturday highlight so back to you Louise So just first off, a sort of little, you know, maybe a vignette so people know who you are, where do you work, and then maybe a sort of a a what took you into Health Pathways work and what's your role with Health Pathways. As I mentioned, I'm a mum. I've got two kids. I live in the Illawarra and work as a part-time GP in the northern Illawarra. My background, oh, I've been in medicine for about 30 years and Lots of part-time work and a variety of work across hospital obstetrics, emergency, paediatrics and general practice. And we moved to the Illawarra in 2006, I think, and I've been in part-time general practice in this region since then. 2015, I'd heard that there was a launch of something called Health Pathways happening in our region and I went along, initially had a little presentation in our practice about it 
by video conference, which was a bit new, and then went along to the launch and at the launch had these wonderful people presenting about the story of development of health pathways in New Zealand and how it helped their system change. And it just seemed to me like a resource that was so obviously filling a big hole in our health system that I was really intrigued about getting involved and put my hand up to start working on our local health pathway site in the Illawarra as a GP clinical editor. And part of what really inspired me at that point was in those days of health pathways, it was quite small still and the launches were um, organised and presented by the New Zealand team, which included the CEO of Streamliners, who were the company that owned the platform, and Ian Anderson's the CEO. And he just gave a really inspiring talk about the goals of health pathways in terms of improving quality of health systems and enabling GPs to you know, perform at the top of their scope and the collaboration and the community that Health Pathways encompassed. And it just made so much sense. So at that point, I got involved and really have been one of the editors on the Illawarra Shoalhaven site since it first started. And I'm sure most people by now would be familiar with what Health Pathways is in that it's a for most GPs, you'd see it as an online platform which has local clinical guidance, point of care use, and it's got information for how to refer and navigate your patients through the system. So it's really like all of the local knowledge in one place, and it's a really standardised format. So if you're coming from somewhere else, you'll immediately know how to use it because it looks the same. It's just your local information. So I was working as an editor on the local site, and... Towards the end of 2016, there was a Health Pathways Conference held in Christchurch in New Zealand. And again, because I was quite intrigued about finding out more about the company and how it worked and the thinking behind it and the people who really keep on putting a lot of their energy and brains into this, I went over to the conference. And fortunately for me, they actually organised a pre-conference hiking trip in the couple of days prior to the conference, which I went along to. And the main person organising that was Dr. Graham McGeoch, who is the Chief Clinical Editor of Health Pathways. And, yeah, we got along really well and had some great talks about how it all worked and where it was going and the fact that it was really growing in Australia as well and started to do some thinking about, you know, how to help the Australian teams more and really have feet on the ground in Australia. and feet on the ground in Australia supporting the New Zealand team. And so we just started developing this role specifically in New South Wales to start with, which was my role as a clinical advisor. So I had a clinical advisor role supporting the 12 New South Wales teams that were developing at that stage. And it was really just to help the teams really collaborate and, you know, try and work together as much as possible with the way their sites were developing and the way they interacted with the New Zealand team and also supporting the way they spoke to government health organisations. So groups like ACI and Clinical Excellence Commission and Cancer Institute New South Wales were all sort of interested in supporting content that was being developed on Health Pathways sites. So I was involved a lot in the getting into those discussions and trying to help everybody work together and work together really well. 2017 was when we started developing the New South Wales Clinical Advisor role. 
and yeah, at that stage we had 11 or 12 teams and that was really very much supporting the teams collaborating together, providing some mentorship and assistance to the clinical editors and really starting to get the, the, you know, the clinical collegial conversations going across teams as well. Since that time, that position's become a little bit more defined and we've brought in a small group of clinical advisors, again, out of the DP clinical editor group. So we've got now one clinical advisor for Queensland, one for a combination of Western Australia, South Australia and Northern Territory, and then one for Victoria, Tasmania and one for New Zealand. And I work with that group really to try and keep keep a help across the whole community about how teams are working together and keep everybody up to date with the discussions that are happening across the community. So yeah, it's gradually developed into a, a leadership role that, that has really felt very much like we've been making it up as we go along, as the needs arisen, as the community's got bigger and broader and has had new, really, I guess, frontier type challenges to meet in writing guidelines, all working together well, interacting with government health agencies and working with a technical writing company, which is Streamliners. So it's been intriguing. <laughs> so my roles now, I work still as a GP in the Northern Illawarra, one to two days a week. I have half a day a week with the local health pathways team writing guidelines with our local hospital specialists. And we have a lovely little team locally with three GPs and a program manager. The rest of my time, pretty much every minute of the day, is, is with solving problems across the community and working with Streamliners New Zealand. And we've had a couple of new projects just starting recently. We also have a, a site called Hospital Health Pathways, which whilst most of the Health Pathways sites, the audience is GP teams, Hospital Health Pathways, the audience is junior doctors. There is one Hospital Health Pathways site in Christchurch, one in Hunter, New England, and now in the Illawarra, we've just started a pilot site based at Wollongong Hospital. So that's pretty exciting too. And this particular hospital health pathways, is that so the junior doctors know how to refer in the hospital or is it so that they can connect with the community when their patients are discharged? Yeah, so that's a great question because it's really all about the continuum of care across the patient's whole care journey. So community health pathways or health pathways that we're all used to, it's really for GP teams so that they know how the whole local health system works. And, and once they've managed a patient to the you know, top of their scope, they then have the phone numbers or the people to call for advice. It might not necessarily be referral to a specialist, but it might be calling a clinical nurse consultant in the heart failure clinic, for example. So it's really getting efficient access to advice and information and knowing what hospital clinics and other services are available. Hospital Health Pathways, the audience is junior doctors. A lot of the use is probably going to be in emergency departments, but it also covers ward care and post-op care and discharge and follow-up planning. So the idea is that once the hospital clinicians are really starting to work with Health Pathways and get used to how it works, they'll start thinking outside the, the hospital box as well and start looking more out into getting conversations happening out into the community and not necessarily referring patients to their own clinics, but also making the most of community resources. So it really hopefully should, you know, get that real bigger picture working together. So do they automatically then link into the community health pathways too? So do you have a sort of a portal between the two systems to make it even more 
sort of obvious about the fact that although they're sort of separate projects, they work together? Yes, absolutely. So the site looks exactly the same as the community site, but it's obviously hospital content. And there's a panel on the right side of the page which has key links and that type of thing. And if there's a parallel page on the community site, they can link straight across to that parallel page, but also they can freely go back and forth between sites. So GP teams in the community will be able to go onto the hospital site and hospital clinicians already have access to the community site, but that'll be really streamlined way back and forth between the pages. Do they actually list some of the GPs who might have special interests or groups, you know, like we have a list of GPs who are happy to see doctors, for instance, or the GPs who are particularly good with adolescents or have a mental health interest, you know, is there some sort of way of also then helping the hospital doctors have conversations with GPs to help them understand how to navigate that care? Yeah, absolutely. So we've got a page on the site called GP Colleague Referrals and we invite all GPs in the area to let us know if they've got special interest in particular areas so that not only do we encourage you know hospital teams to refer out to special interest GPs but also GPs to refer to each other rather than necessarily to hospital services. Oh, that sounds wonderful, Louise. I mean, I'm, we're forever hearing, does anybody know who can do this? And you just, you know, it's nice to be able to have a fellow GP do something that you know is, you know, simple and straightforward, but if it's not something you normally do, it's much better to have someone who does it regularly, yet you don't want them to take over the regular care of them because, you know, they're in your GP home. Is this an initiative that's going to be taken up by other health pathways in the community? Our region has actually just started too. We received emails a few weeks ago asking if any of us had special interests that could be listed and if so, what they were. And I believe it went live in South East Sydney last week, which is exciting. Yeah, I think a lot of regions are discovering it's quite a popular, as soon as they let GPs know, then suddenly that page starts getting a lot of user activity. So lots of people are looking. So at the moment on our list of special interest GPs. We've got gender affirming doctor lists, GPs who provide aviation medicals, dive medicals, GPs with special interest in drug and alcohol, GPs who perform ear microsuction, GPs who do endoscopy, eyelid lesion excision, focused psychological strategies, hepatitis C management, HIV prescribers, ingrown toenail surgery, IUD insertions, IV iron infusion, medical termination of pregnancy, musculoskeletal corticosteroid injections, palliative care, ring pessary fits, skin cancer checks, vasectomies, and uh, zoledronic acid infusions. So that's where we're up to so far. What a great list of useful sort of special things because it's sort of like some of them, you know, you like the, the toenail surgery. It's one of those sort of funny things that you know you can't actually find a non-GP specialist who does that sort of thing because it's a very GP thing but not everybody does it. I love it. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. And how easy is it for editing? So, for instance, you know, because those sorts of things, it's a bit like psychologists, isn't it? It could be a little bit mobile for some things. So how easy is it for a GP to go on or off a list? Really super easy. We have a... um 
provide a directory format with our sites that we can manage ourselves so that it's very easy for us to quickly change phone numbers and that kind of thing directly onto the site. Anything more complicated, so you know the COVID pathways or the vaccination changes, then we go through the technical writing team to help us create rapid updates. So depending on the urgency, we might you know, update a pathway within a couple of hours or overnight if it's super urgent. So it was announced on the news last week about changing the AstraZeneca vaccine recommendation in Australia to the over 50s only. <laughs> I found that out on the news that evening and we had it up on all sites by 7 o'clock the next morning in Australia that that was a recommendation. So we can change things very quickly and we have a lot of autonomy. So we try and keep our layers of governance fairly low so that we can get stuff fixed really fast. So, I mean, we certainly have wonderful people supporting us. So with a lot of our COVID vaccine content, Penny Burns has been fantastic in providing quick responses when we've got complicated queries and checking our content for us. And we've had you know, a range of wonderful you know, state level or national level experts to, to help us when we need quick information about stuff like that. That leads me to the question that's been burning in my brain, which is when you were first talking about all the different roles that you had, I was like, mm. ooh, that's a lot of stuff going on. And I've noticed in my life when I've got lots of stuff going on, it's hard to not have that sort of other stuff seeping into your regular life. And then in the next session you said every other minute of my day is <laughs> pretty much <laughs> working on all the issues. Yeah. So I'm my question is, you know, it sounds like it's a really important role and it's one of those roles that, you know, if there's an error on there, like that's a big deal and so it also sounds like that it's high pressure. So how do you give yourself some space and, you know, look after yourself whilst being in such a position? So I'm not great at setting boundaries on my time. That's a lifelong lesson, I think, that a lot of us learn slowly. For me, my big escape is getting out running. <laughs> so... I'm a member of a beautiful local trail running group and we do lots of running in the bush, set some goals. Like Next week there's the biggest trail running event in the Southern Hemisphere happening in the Blue Mountains, which I'll be running in. So it's great having definite escapes like that where I don't answer the phone unless it's an emergency, but generally I ignore my phone. I've got it in my pocket if I need it, but don't look at my emails or anything like that while I'm out running and those kind of events go for hours. So I do have definitely have some black spots where people can't contact me. But, yeah, generally I'm very available because <laughs> it is very much an on-call sort of a role for a, a large number of people. But we don't have a lot of huge emergencies and fortunately we have lots of layers of peer review on most of our pathways because we share content across the site. So, you know, I might write a clinical pathway, but when I write a clinical pathway, I'll usually be working on a pathway that somebody's already developed on another site. So I'm another layer of clinical eyes looking at that pathway. And if I see any errors or issues, then I'll give feedback straight away. Most of the errors are really tiny. Like they tend to be, you know, grammatical or, you know, minor issues or, you know, things that are slightly out of date that can be updated. So the great thing about having this kind of community is that everybody's looking at each other's work and giving feedback. 
very rarely we have a re an error that we would consider is a, a risk. And with that, depending on the urgency, we'll change all sites across the country at once and let everybody know the next day that we found an error and fix it. That would be maybe a once in a year event and pretty low likelihood that we'd ever find something really significant. And it, yeah, it's brilliant having so many GPs constantly looking at the pathways all the time and talking with each other. We've got a, a Facebook group just for general practitioners who are clinical editors on our site, and it's a really positive workspace. I, I would have to say I think that's my most positive social media workspace <laughs> with all the, the cancel culture experience that we're having at the moment with people criticising leadership and people's decision-making and that kind of thing. I'm not seeing any of that on our Facebook group, which I'm just loving. <laughs> I think having so many clinical eyes looking at it all the time really makes it quite a safe piece of work. My next question is what kind of shoes do you wear trail running? <laughs> we, we've been having this discussion on the podcast a little bit because I introduced Charlotte to Ons and then she's bought a pair. I don't, I don't know where she's at now with the Ons. <laughs> I'm still clouding. You're still clouding. Right. Yes, that's a good sign. I wear an old pair of Hocker Torrents at the moment. I, I changed up to one of their more expensive newer pairs of shoes called the Evo Mafate, I think they're called, and they don't work for me as well as my good old Torrents. So I'm going back to the Torrents for next week. On the road, I wear Brooks. <laughs> So tell me, I haven't done much trail running, Louise, because I have not very stable ankles. And interestingly, so I've done the Coastal Classic three times now and sprained my ankle four kilometres oh, in no. on my first ever. So since then, carry a bandage with me because fortunately when I sprained it, there was a lady just behind me who came equipped with ankle bracing materials. Oh, wow. For me, that sort of puts me off because, you know, it's sort of one of those things that the very uneven ground gets my ankle going. So do those shoes protect your ankle? Is that why they're good for you or what's special about them? They fit my orthotics in and they're good and grippy and they've got enough cushioning for me not to get into too much foot pain until about 20 kilometres and then, and then I give myself a talking to that I'll never run a marathon. <laughs> But trail running, you can go down fast and hard if you hit a rock or catch your ankle or, you know, catch your foot on a twig. And it's normally when you're not doing anything technical. It's normally when you're relaxing on an easy bit that you go down. But I've got no ACL in my right knee and I've got a very rolly right ankle and I don't seem to go over very often, fortunately. Oh, well, there you go. Maybe that's a challenge I can throw myself once I've emerged into some more challenges. It's much better for you, much better for your body and your balance and looking after your joints than running on the roads, I find. Oh, I'm sure it's great for your core. Now, I'm going to just move us back a little bit into the health pathways just to finish us off because I'm fascinated by you're one of the classic leaders who's fallen into leadership. So you you found an exciting opportunity that tantalised you with, you know, the opportunity that it gave for improving your experience as a GP and for patient care. And then those opportunities just kept falling in front of you and you've obviously embraced each one of them and done a fabulous job. You made some comment about you just coming to grips with, with leadership, yet from where I sit, you've obviously actually taken a 
much more of a leadership role than maybe you thought you were as you got yourself there because I think sometimes there's this unconscious leadership that people do when you see something and you go for it. Look, I really believe with leadership there is so much of a void that anyone who's willing to step into it and take action, people are going to follow and be relieved that somebody's doing something about the problem. I'm definitely somebody who would prefer to roll up my sleeves and get to work and get an outcome than move into leadership or talk on podcasts or <laughs> present. But then I, I realise when I'm you know, running a workshop with a team who's learning about how to implement their Health Pathways site, that the enthusiasm and the passion and the ability to do something positive to change the system and to make the world a better place is just, yeah, you know, it's so inspiring and energizing that it's really easy. Yeah, well, go for it. Can I say that I'm I'm with you. All the GPs I've talked to who are clinical writers on health pathways are the most wonderful, wonderful doctors and enthusiastic. And I just think it it is obviously a really great work culture, and you know you're making a difference, and it's a great thing to be able to do. When I first started looking at doing the clinical advisor work. I saw something, oh, I think it was just in the you know, staff news with the Streamliners organisation in New Zealand and it, someone had made the comment that they recognised that when people get to go to work every day and feel like they're making the world a better place, it makes going to work really easy and a, you know, a positive, feel-good thing to be doing and I think that's what everybody gets out of working on this platform. Practical question. So I've moved practices a couple of times and I know registrars move practices and regions really often. How do I find out if there's a local health pathways in my area or if my region has changed and who do I contact to get passwords? Right. So you make contact with your local primary health network. So all teams are sponsored funded, supported by a mixture of their local primary health network and their local hospital service. So, you know, for example, my local team is 50-50 you know, between the, the PHN and the LHD. But as a local GP, when you'd like access, you basically just make contact with your PHN or you could Google <laughs> Health Pathways with your region's name after it and you'll find the, the site, but then you'll need to seek access to the site. Once you're actually on the site, you'll be able to request access and that will go through to the team and you'll get a um, message back with your access details. But probably the easiest way is directly via the PHN and they'll, they'll give you direct access. So the site is password protected around the regions and the main reason for that is that it's written by GPs for GP teams and it's not health literacy screened for the general public. And we also haven't you know, told our medical indemnity providers that we're writing pathways for consumers. We're writing pathways for each other. And as a GP using the site, we apply our own clinical judgment, clinical acumen when we use the pathways. So we're an extra filter once we're actually using them. The other thing is that when we work with our hospital specialists, we might get access to you know, phone numbers like we have on our site, the direct phone number for the admitting officer in emergency. So those kind of things, they give us knowing that this is a protected site for GP teams rather than being generally available and it seems to be working okay that way but yeah definitely if you want access to your local site you contact your local PHN 
all GPs around the country do have access to a site. Some of the sites are not fully localised sites. So in Western New South Wales, for example, there's a pilot site which has local New South Wales COVID content. So they've got access to all of the COVID pathway content that we have, but they haven't gone ahead with the full implementation at this stage. And similarly, the South East Melbourne, Mornington Peninsula region don't have their own local site yet, but they have access to the Melbourne site at this stage. And they'd be the only two regions in the country that don't have a full site at this point. Really interesting. Thank you so much. And I've learnt some new things about Health Pathways and am inspired by what Health Pathways can do. What would be a clinical resource that you'd like to share with us today? One of the learnings that we've had with developing pathways is that we also have great Australian benchmark resources that we still rely on with our work. So our scope as GPs and editors is writing clinical pathways and working with our specialists and creating trust and relationships with secondary care services. Our scope is not in writing detailed drug formulary information into pathways. So we try to only include, you know, the first couple of levels of medication advice in pathways but we still strongly encourage GPs to subscribe to our great Australian benchmark resources, which are you know, Australian Medicines Handbook in particular and Therapeutic Guidelines. We all rely on those and we continue to use those. And, and definitely we recommend that GPs don't try to look for really super detailed prescribing information in pathways, but continue to support those resources in Australia. And I think... Being an RACGP member, you get a discount on an AMH subscription, if I remember correctly. You do, absolutely. Beck, what's a clinical gem you'd like to share this week? I found out this week that the abstracts for GP 2021 were open, which is exciting because it's going ahead both face-to-face and virtual this year, but also um, to let people know if they're thinking about doing it, jump on and do it because you need a few weeks to get things together. So, yeah, get your abstracts together. Thanks, Beck. Ash? <laughs> a-, a clinical tip of mine is not going to be a resource. It's going to be a scheduling thing. So I've recently changed clinics and I was used to sort of seeing a certain number of patients in an hour in a cohort of people that I have been seeing over a course of five years and then starting in a new clinic, it's new patients all the time. And it just really reminded me what it's like when you're in training and a lot of the people that you're seeing, there's so much sort of information to take on when you're seeing them. And the only way to change that is by changing the amount of time that you you see people for. So I, I tweaked my scheduling a little bit again and it was super helpful. So I, I, my clinical tip is if you're feeling like the situations that you're in are stressful then there's always little things that you can do or little conversations that you can have with the people around you in your own clinic about ways that you can sort of better manage your workload. Thank you. I was just thinking for me what what's been the most useful thing I've been 
using just recently is actually going on my health record and both a finding the pathology results and diagnostics for patients of mine that have been through the hospital as well as our own pathology are now being uploaded onto there but even more excitingly is the Australian Immunisation Registry details so for instance one of my patients who's a psychiatrist had recently just had a whole lot of vaccinations done through the hospital but she couldn't remember exactly what so I was able to click on the my health record and click for the Australian Immunisation Registry. There it was, exactly listed what she'd had, when she'd had them, that yes, she was fully vaccinated with Pfizer and she'd had an update of her boost streak. It was just so cool to just instantly get it when normally you just go, oh, how am I going to get it? And oh, all of this thing that was literally the press of a button and then a, an opening in the, the file so I'll just if people haven't gone and explored my health record recently and felt it wasn't really useful it's becoming extraordinarily useful and has saved me so much time particularly getting results of investigations that even the specialist hasn't yet downloaded and you can access because they're up there for us to be able to see that is so great to have my health record finally actually become something that we can interact with and it's really useful for us for a change rather than just that obligation to keep on uploading stuff. That's brilliant. Yeah, and can I say a whole lot of my patients now are getting the app on their phones because they're excited about being able to get their pathology results that way too. And that's been really helpful because I can say, look, I don't need to print your piece of paper. You just need to go on your My Health Record and they're there now. And that's been great. Saving our environment at the same time and you don't need to ring the clinic to access a normal result that's it yep so I can send them a message and say they're all normal and you teach them that they can go and then go and see what they look like for me I think that's a saves time and really improves everybody taking a little bit more control over their own health records too so on that note, I'm going to say thank you, everybody. Thank you, Louise, for sharing with us a little bit about the Health Pathways story. And hopefully we'll inspire a few more people to not only look at my health record, but more importantly, go and find their own local health pathways and use them on a regular basis to find out how to navigate the health system better for themselves and their patients.